On this episode, we talk about the idea of perceived value. We talk about how to increase perceived value, uh, tips and tricks. Hope you get a lot out of this. Let's get into it. Game begin. Let's go. Vegeta, what does the scouter say about his marketing level? It's over 9,000! What, 9,000? I must be using crowdfunding nerds. Amazing. Hey everybody and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host Andrew Lone and I am joined um, by Sean and Jacob this week. How are you guys doing? Doing hey. great. And we're going to talk about uh, something that kind of just happened uh, in a conversation. So we've had a client that um, is not in the game space, is not in the crowdfunding space, is actually selling um, e-commerce. And we had a really interesting case study um, that really boils down to the value, uh, the perceived value that a customer has for your product. And I mean, this is totally every single person listening to this podcast. You need to listen closely because I promise you it relates to your stuff, whether it's crowdfunding or, or you're selling your stuff after crowdfunding. It is super duper important in regard to like deliverance for me, like selling right now, um, in extremely important. And so uh, we're going to talk about price elasticity of demand. We're going to talk about true value versus perceived value, communicating your value, and when the customer sees your stuff and doesn't buy it. Um, oh, well, no. you know, maybe they like it. So that's that's my tee up. How'd I do? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So you, you're quite passionate about this uh, topic. Did you have this call today? Is it so yeah. is it fresh in your mind? Ah, it, it is actually. So, um, the uh, so th- what happened was uh, Jacob on you know Jacob's a member of our team. You know him, Sean. You know him. Um, sort of. <laughs> he yeah. uh, said, "Hey, Andrew, I need your help. Uh, I'm I'm like the big guns around here. If uh, if um, you know something's going wrong, it's like Andrew needs to take a look at it." And Jake, that was the situation like uh, like this. He he basically has done everything he can possibly do. And the client is saying like, Hey, you know, it's not what's, what's going on. And, um, Jacob actually being the skilled marketer that he is told the client exactly what's going on, but, um, maybe the client needed to hear it from a different source. I don't know exactly, but so what happened was this, we started marketing this product. Um, it's a value, it's a $99 product. And, uh, so it's not, you know, super cheap. It's like, you have to think about it before you buy it. Consumable product. And they originally just had it on their website and they were selling, they were just driving traffic right to their landing, you know, right to their product page and they weren't making sales. So they brought us in and said, um, you know, maybe you guys can make sales for us. So what we did was, and they, they had no idea why, you know, people were buying, people were clicking and not buying, you know? And so we, uh, came in, we said, look, the website is actually not very attractive and it doesn't explain what your product does. So there are a bunch of problems, you know, and like we, what we need to do is we need to figure out how we can, you know, we talked about this in a couple of podcasts ago, eliminate variables to figure out what's going on. And uh, we need to do that without hopefully breaking the bank. So um, they, uh, so we got started with marketing and what we did before we actually ran ads, we, um, you know, obviously after trying to figure out and understand what they do and who their customer is, where to find them and uh, what to say, you know, to get them interested. 
uh, we put together a landing page. So even though they had a website with a product page, the product page doesn't do a very good job articulating what the thing actually does. And their website is relatively inflexible, you know, as far as like the person who built it is going to charge lots of money to change it. And um, so what we did was we just built a landing page for their product. And the call to action on that landing page was click, basically click to go to the product page and, um, you know, an order. So uh, we ran ads to the landing page. We found over time, we were able to really optimize those ads. People were clicking at a very high rate. They were um, uh, going to the landing page. They were spending a good amount of time there and clicking from that landing page at like, you know, between 20 and 30% of the people that go there were clicking from the landing page to go to the product page. After they read about the product, they were ready to, um, you know, to go to that product page. And the problem was when they got there, they weren't making that many sales. We, you know, they made 16 sales total over, you know, a month or so. Um, but the amount they were spending and the amount that our fee was and all of that, like it just, um, it wasn't, it's not like it's a total loss, but it just wasn't very strong. So they made roughly $1,600 and they spent, you know, cl close, close to the same on, um, our, on fees and, and the cost of ads and, and everything like that. So it's just not really a, a good, a good return for them. And, and the question that they product, had us, right. But say it again. They've only got one product, right? Is that's that correct. The case. Okay. Yes. So it's, it's the type of product that you might one day, you know, you might see on Shark Tank or something like that. So anyway, Jacob and I are on this meeting with the client to figure out or you know, to analyze what's going on and that kind of thing. And so Jacob has been the main one uh, dealing with them on a, you know, weekly or bi semi-weekly basis, um, just in, in meetings. So it's not like all of this was a surprise to them or anything like that. Like we've been keeping in good communication and trying different things and, and really like eliminating variables. Like, you know, if there's a problem, let's, let's make this change, test this thing and see if, if that works and, and uh, you know, measure, adjust and, and whatnot, make better ads and target more accurately and update the landing page and that sort of thing. So um, what it came down to was we were, we were able to test every single thing and eliminate every single variable except for one thing. When, so if they, if they, the right people see the ad, the right people click the ad, they go to the landing page and a high percentage of them click to the, to actually go to the product page to order the product. Like the, the calls to action are like order now, you know? So it's, we're not saying like, check it out, learn more, like nothing passive. It's like very direct. Um, they, and then not buying. The problem is a, a perceived value. So a perceived value issue. So the customer goes there and says, I, they have value in what it is that the, the, the product um, is offering. But then when they go to the page and they see the price and, you know, which includes, of course, the cost of the item, which is $99, as well as the cost of shipping, which was $15 in the U.S., um, just like a, a flat, a flat fee, that together adds up to a higher perceived investment than they're receiving value. And so what I wanted to talk about on the podcast today is how do and remember it's perceived value the actual value of the thing could be incredible you know but the perception the customer has is that this is not worthwhile to just buy right now 
I need to think about it. Um, so they'll say things and it generally will range from like, you know, people saying, Oh, that's way too expensive. I thought it was going to be $20, you know, um, all the way to people that say, Oh, this looks really amazing. I just want to check the bank account or something to make sure that every, all my investments and expenses will pencil out. Or maybe I just want to do a little research on this to figure out, you know, if it's right for me and they pause their purchase of the product and intend to get back to it, maybe, and maybe don't. So, you know, every, along with everybody in between. So we're going to talk about how to dial up the perceived value of your product. So, which is going to work with, I mean, if you're selling it, uh, something on Kickstarter or GameFound, that page that you make, the story that you put together is all about perceived value. You want the perception of the value of your product to be extremely high and the price to be, you know, um, to be lower than they expected or whatever. So um, that's kind of where the, you know, hopefully I framed the pot the uh, topic well enough for everybody. So, um, you know, there, there are a couple of different, um, different pieces to the puzzle. One of the things about this particular client is that they believe, and I don't think this is wrong. I think you should be a true believer in your product. They believe their product's worth like a million dollars. They believe their product is worth so much. Like it will change someone's life and it will um, do all of this great stuff. And that you're a fool if you don't spend $99 on this thing because the value you're going to get is incredible. And the problem isn't that the, the, that it, the product lacks value. It's that the customer doesn't have the same perception of the value as the, as the maker of the product. Right. Um, now, part of that could just be like, Hey, maybe, maybe the client's diluted and, and whatever, but I don't think they are. I actually think that the products would do well. They've been in contact with shark tank and other things too. Um, I think where their failure is in, uh, you know, that I'll say, I don't know what the phrase is, but like where they're missing the customer is really in communicating that value. Wouldn't is that what is that how you would uh, uh, would you agree with that, Jacob? Yes, I do. I, I do think that that's a a pretty solid assessment. Cool. So now, it's interesting because when you kind of get into this idea of how to frame the value, we often the first place to start is really thinking in terms of solutions. What what solution does your product or service fix, and then how can you clearly communicate that? That yes. is a bit harder to do with board games because the solution is is more of an abstract or person. It's more abstract mm -hmm. and personal. You know, if you've got broken windows, uh, the solution to your window guy is that he fixes windows. <laughs> it's a pretty <laughs> pretty cut cut and clear what he what he does. It's pretty easy to sell uh, to a particular demographic of people. But when it's something a bit more nebulous, like oh, board gamers, well, what what solution are you providing for them? For and this is where you start getting to mm -hmm. personalities. There's going to mm -hmm. be people who are going to back your game because they don't have a really crunchy miniatures sci-fi game. And this is just, mm -hmm. this is the perfect game to finish their collection. They'll, they'll be able to say, yep. yes, I've got this game for other people. It's going to be, uh, an another reason this just looks really fun. I don't have a game that I, I think is going to be as fun as this game. So I'm going to back mm -hmm. it. So understanding the customer, their desires, their personality mm -hmm. and their, their needs and wants and mm -hmm. leveraging those is going to help you frame uh, and adjust this idea of perceived value. I think that's a good place to, to start. What solution can you can you can you solve? And to yep. do that, you have to first understand your customer. 
Definitely. Actually, I would I agree with you fully. And then I would even add one more layer on it and say board games, for example, are it's a lot easier to communicate the value of a board game if you're talking to a board gamer. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of the time we take for granted the fact that board games are available as an interest on kicks on uh, Facebook for Facebook ads, um, because we're we're you know, we do a lot of board game marketing and for you know kickstarter game found campaigns and beyond that and it uh you know i i kind of sometimes when i step into the realm of something else like you know selling this particular product which i'm not naming on purpose um the uh there's no group of people that would be obvious um you know, candidates for this, you know, there's, it, it deals with painting. It deals with, uh, we'll say like mental health and, and other things like that. But, um, it's not like painters that are concerned with mental health would find an, a use for this particular product. It's something that kind of helps somebody get over their post-traumatic stress and, and whatnot. Um, so you probably sell it to uh, people who do kickstarters. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. Yeah, maybe we should name it on this on this podcast. Anyway, the reason I'm not naming it isn't because I don't think that it's a good product or even that I'm embarrassed of performance or anything. It's because strictly I didn't ask permission from the client. I didn't get permission, so I just don't want to like, you know, I don't want them to um feel like we're we're covering them negatively or something like that. So anyway, everybody in, you know, that has the board game interest, you know, the majority of them will say they understand the value of playing board games and and the fact that it's fun it's fun in a box and they're not so deterred by reading rules and if we target the right types of people or show you know in in our ad creative a big box game it's the people that respond because they get to see what it looks like they're not going to be deterred by the fact that the rule book is 40 pages or or that it's this big space opera experience of you know, what, whatever. Um, so that's something I think we tend to take for granted and finding the right way to communicate, just finding the interest. If there's one interest that binds together all of your people, that's like a huge, huge thing. Uh, but then beyond that, it's, it's like, you know, like what you're saying, Sean is there's, there are so many different board games out there. And there's a limited amount of disposable income that I have and that every board gamer has to, to buy said board games. So we have to, and on top of that, it's like, am I going to have enough time to get this to the table? Is my gamer group going to like it? And other questions like that. Is this a good value for the money? Is, you know, and that's really where you start getting into what it is that you were, that you were saying. And I think that it's really worthwhile when you're talking about um, how to, really stand out in the board game industry with your product. If, if people look at your game and perceive incredible value, then you're going to outshine your competitors. I mean, that's, that's just the way that, you know, all the other board games, right. That are out there. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, I think that that's maybe we could dive into nuances and stuff, but any, before we do that, I mean, any feedback, um, or, like what maybe actually we'll do this. What causes the discrepancy in value? So let's talk about board games. When you have one board game um versus another, and a customer is looking at both as as a possibility, what's gonna decide in you know, what's gonna cause that customer to decide in favor of one game over the other? If let's say let's frame it a little bit more and say, if 
a customer says, okay, uh, I think I would like both of these. What causes customer to value one higher uh, over the other? I think some of that can differ depending on the, the mechanics or theme of the game. Uh, I know for myself, <clears throat> I play a lot of games with my wife and we often play right after we get the kids to bed and our time frame is, is limited. So I do think for, for us specifically, we end up with a lot of shorter playing games and that can be a market that is pretty heavy with a, a lot of different options. But one of the things that becomes uh, a, a quick indicator of if, is it worth it or not is what's the replayability like? Um, is this a game that's going to feel like I've experienced all this game has to experience within three or four plays? Or is this something that's going to continue to offer me something kind of fresh and exciting each time I play it, um, maybe for the next what like, if I 30 said, or 40 plays? What if I said, um, like, what if you saw infinite replayability was written on both of them? <laughs> Endless replayability. Oh, man. Nine billion map setups. <laughs> That's Does a that, real winner. I think at that point, I'd almost be trying to convince my wife to let me buy both. Uh, <laughs> so um, I guess, do you, do you believe it like, for real? Like what makes replayability for you? Like, what do you, what do you look to judge if a game is replayable? The words, do the words people use matter in that front or on that front or does, or is it something else? Is it a combination? Uh, I think there's probably a combination. I do like to see that there's variable winning conditions. Uh, so I don't feel like I have to pursue the same way to win every single time I play the game. Uh, so if there's any way to demonstrate that there are other ways to get to that angle is kind of nice because it gives me kind of a lure that maybe I need to try a different strategy and see if I can win with this strategy this time as opposed to doing the same thing over and over again and just hoping my score is a little bit higher. Um and I wonder what else would sway me. Uh, so you, you play a lot of competitive games then? I do play a lot of competitive games. My wife is one of those gamers that if she can't beat me in a game, she doesn't want to play it. Uh, <laughs> a, we're together That's in marriage. I have there's seven kids and you marriage, have three. But if, if she can't win, then she doesn't want to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We play an idea. Um, strictly co-op in our house. So we, that we have a great relationship um, together, my wife and I. <laughs> I have a. I think there's something that might sway you, Jacob. I think if one has the ability to show rather than tell, I think that one will persuade you. I think this is a, a common mistake that sure. a lot of people do in, when mm -hmm. trying to promote their games. And, and this idea of perceived value is that they just tell you infinite replayability instead of actually showing, like, oh, here's the the game and you know five different configurations how you can set up and this you know allowing people to come to the natural conclusions like, oh my goodness, look at all these different configurations. I could play this forever. Uh, not assuming that the people that you're talking to are 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 stupid. That you can help them come to a a conclusion by presenting the right information in front of them and showing them instead of telling them. I think it's, it's important. And then people feel like they feel intelligent. Oh, I've come to this conclusion myself. It's not not something that someone's told me and I've just blindly believed it. So I think that's that's going to be key in, in this idea of solidifying perceived value is showing or demonstrating the the product or what is being offered mm -hmm. rather than just simply telling people. Because uh, I think sure. maybe there's going to be a lot of buyer apprehension because they just don't trust you. They're like They've just seen an ad on Facebook and now you're asking for $100. Like, come on, you got to convince me that this thing works. If I'm going to, you know, mm -hmm. fork over a hundred bucks, I might just bookmark this or, you know, keep it in my memory bank and come back to this later. And 
and then I might buy it if I see another ad or if I see someone talking about it. But I think a lot of this is going to be show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I do think yeah. there are definitely a few other steps that people can take too, as far as swaying. Um, I, I know for a lot of people, it's a big turnoff if the rule book isn't readily available uh, to view as soon as they see their Kickstarter. Uh, because being able to dive into the rules and kind of see how configurations play out or how certain mechanics work um, really kind of puts it in that situation where you're you're just telling me you're not showing me. Like allow me mm-hmm. to kind of get into seeing how this thing works. And if I can read through your rule book and be like, oh man, this this really looks like it's going to play great. Um, then I think you've done it kind of a poor job if, if, if you've not given that, that option. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's huge. I would say that, um, the, your, whatever it is that you say, I tend, in fact, one of the shortcuts of selling that we've gone over before, we, I think we talked about the shortcuts of selling with Dan Bo. I want to say it's podcast 61 and 62, like episode 61 and 62 or something. Um, <clears throat> We talked about that the one of the shortcuts to selling is, um, you know, that the customer takes in their mind when you're selling to them is that I don't believe what you're saying is true. I don't believe you because they don't know you and and they are um, not that interested in getting to know you. But just based on what you say, they don't have a whole lot of trust for you. And so um, or rather, if they don't have a lot of trust for you, they just say, I don't believe what it is that you're saying is true. And, and that's kind of going on in their inner monologue. Um, that's not something they're often going to say out loud. Um, but they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, I need to check my bank account or I need to ask my wife or I need to, you know, whatever, whatever that is, um, that is kind of a way to get out of it. Um, and so, um, you know, and to be kind, right. So I think that, um, one of the best ways to show, not tell, I mean, we talked about actually on our call, we talked about images, um, one of the problems that we had was like they had one image of their product on the the e-commerce page and they didn't have a picture of the product being used. They didn't have a picture of the product in the box, like somebody holding the product to see how large it is. And um, they didn't have any like video testimonial or, or any kind of video to, to demonstrate the product. Um, and I think that demonstrating is so important. And like, however you can, sh- like you said, Sean, show, not tell. If you can demonstrate your product in every single possible way, that's that's every single way that you do manage to find a way to demonstrate your product, to show, not tell, you're going to make more money. That's what I think. You know, I, gifts on, yeah, go ahead, Sean, go ahead. I, just, I have an interesting case study that I actually covered this week is that one of one of our, our clients, we did a dynamic ad on Facebook. This is where you use multiple images to uh, work out what is the, the best uh, combination. And we had all these different product shocks. And what was really funny <laughs> was that the image that did the best was the back of the box. Something that you would never think would actually work. But for whatever reason, the back of the box was a close-up of the back. Someone holding the box up to yeah. the back. That did the best for whatever reason. Uh, so <laughs> it was super interesting. So I think an- another idea of kind of communicating value is you're going to have to experiment and yeah. it's allowing the market to tell you what they find interesting. Because if you show me all these pictures, I would have never thought the back of the box would have done well. To be honest, I kind of just threw it in there because it was like, okay, well you can, you can test 10 things. So we just throw this in there because we, we've got 10 images and this is just one of them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's key is experimenting. And the, the important thing is being 
and having the tool set to be able to do that, knowing how to run your Facebook ads and being able to experiment with this and, and we can certainly help with those types of things. But I, I do think that that is, that's key to understanding this is experimentation because that's mm-hmm. the only way that you're going to find out if what you're doing actually works. That's outside mm-hmm. of your personal opinions. Like, okay, well, I actually have the information, the data here that is showing me clearly that people respond to this at a, mm-hmm. at a greater capacity than other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how many, how many decisions are made based off of personal feeling. It's like, I feel like I don't read emails, so I don't think I'm going to ever collect any of them. It's like, dude, you're just hamstringing your company, but there are people that legit are full on like, no, I don't read emails. So uh, my customers certainly won't either. And I I think that this is, um, it shows Sometimes it shows stubbornness, other times inexperience, but, um, you know, that's kind of what is at the root cause. Well, it's interesting because it's, it's perceived value again, isn't it? Like some people have a, yeah. a greater perceived value for Twitter followers. Like I was, I was talking to someone today and I, and I, I told them, I said, do you know that 1000 emails is the equivalent of a hundred thousand Twitter followers? Uh, Twitter yeah. followers are not all that valuable when it comes to mm-hmm. actually converting and driving user action. Uh, they're not great for getting people to buy or support your stuff. I um, mean, I can send articles and links to this where uh, video game developers have have tried this. The, a thousand emails convert at a higher rate than a hundred thousand Twitter followers. So mm-hmm. again, this comes down to perceived value. That, that a big number might look impressive on Twitter, but having a thousand emails is actually more valuable in terms of driving sales than a hundred thousand Twitter followers or X right, followers. A hundred thousand emails is better than a hundred. Uh, 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 sorry. A thousand emails is better than a hundred thousand twits. Um, so that's that's. I feel Xers. like that's what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, the um, I think part of this is to know your customer. So one of the easiest ways that you can uh, figure out like what how people perceive what it is that you're selling is talking to the people that buy. So one of the things that we do in um, Deliverance, especially on our Discord server. Whenever anybody joins our Discord server, I always ask the same question. And now we have others that have kind of mirrored me asking the same question. How did you hear about deliverance? And, you know, welcome. And how do you hear about deliverance? And um, the, uh, we get a lot of really great information, like firsthand information right from the horse's mouth when they, when they do the thing. And um, we have uh, for deliverance, the average time that somebody hears about the game to the time that they purchase the product is a ranges, but it it's about three weeks. So when I spend, you know, a dollar on Facebook to get somebody to go to the landing page and, and whatever, I will realize a sale of a hundred or $140 three weeks later. And that, that customer in the middle of, the this process they use to um, figure out what value deliverance has is um, uh, is you know they're they're going to join our Discord and they might say oh I had some questions or whatever but after a while they'll say I'm so excited I just I just went all you know all in or I just bought the game and I'm really excited for it to come and all of that so there's this. It's it's interesting because a lot of our cust- a lot of our Discord members come in and they immediately ask a rules question or they immediately ask a question about the uh, do the miniatures come ink washed like is that easy to paint over like do you have to remove the ink wash before you paint or um, 
you know, how much, uh, like, is this game a campaign game or a skirmish game? And, you know, they'll ask questions like that. And then about a week afterwards, they will be like, I just went all in, you know, and I'm excited and that kind of thing. And so um, there's this process that they go through to figure out, like, is this game right for me? Am I going to buy this or not? Right. And it's really all about their perceived value. So um, there's this uh, concept and I may be tangenting in a, in a way that might not help, but I, I really wanted to get this concept in. It's called the price elasticity of demand. And um, this is a, an economics concept that says the higher that a product's price is, the, you know, it is, well, it's, it's like a, an X, Y axis on one side, you've got the price and the other side, you've got elasticity. So like on the Y you've got elasticity and then the X, which is vertically, you've got price. There's a certain point at which the demand for a product kind of reaches a pinnacle with the price of the product. So if you, let's say, you know, deliverance at a hundred dollars has, we'll just say like ideal demand for the product. So if I were to increase the price by 10%, then the demand would shrink by more than 10%. And that would mean that I make less money. So in the end, if I were to say, let's say I, I charge $50 for deliverance, the demand would be very high. Like if I all of a sudden reduced the cost of deliverance on our website to $50, I would sell out of all of it super fast. Everybody would buy it and I would be out of units. Because, and, and then people would be saying, where is the game? I wish I could have a copy of the game at $50 because the demand would be really, really high, but I would make half the amount of money and generate you know, all, all that demand. It's, it wouldn't, again, I'd make less money in the end. I don't have unlimited products to sell. So um, the, the challenge is achieving the, the right balance. And so the, if the perceived value is higher then the more elastic, like we're talking like rubber band elastic. So the more elastic it is, a customer's um, willingness to buy it anyway is, is going to be. So if, for example, um, Deliverance is a, a great game, I'm telling you all about it. It, it has an 8.8 .8 rating right now on BoardGameGeek. It's really high. We have like 500 reviews and we're at an 8.8, .8, which I'm really proud of. Um, and you know, we oscillate like regular between 8.7 to 8.8 .8, and our, our, our players really love it. But, um, so, and that has a certain amount of pull, like that will make people more interested in the value, the perceived value will be higher because independent third party unaffiliated people that have experienced the game are talking about it and, and that kind of thing. Um, but if I, if I were to get, let's say, um, a dice tower award or, or like the seal of excellence from Tom Vassell, um, that would increase the perceived value. People would be saying, wow, Tom really likes it. I like the games Tom likes and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I could increase it further by having a third party person that has street cred with his audience or her audience um, doing this thing. So um, I think reviewers, I would say reviewers are one of the biggest assets that we've got personally for our, um, you know, for our, you know, for, for leveling up perceived value. Yeah, I'd agree. Especially with the nature of board games. I don't remember what the statistic is. I mean, how many thousands of new games are created every 
every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are consumers that are looking to buy and add multiple new games, but there's a big sea of, of product that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think your, your point about reviewers is a great one because it's easier to find a voice that you trust than it is to try to sort through a thousand different games and narrow it down yourself. Um, if you can get a reviewer that you trust to, to ex- give some positive exposure to a game, I feel like that usually almost immediately jumps that, that game to the front of the line as like, mm-hmm. these are ones that I would prioritize getting if giving, if given the option, cause I trust their opinion. Yep. Yeah. Another thing is I, I want to jump in is that to, to go back to deliverance and this idea of uh, perceived value and getting people to make a purchase. The one of the dangers or one of the disadvantages with deliverance currently is that that kind of getting someone to the website to look at deliverance currently it's it's binary it's do I want this or do I not want this mm-hmm. on your website you're currently selling nothing else so another disadvantage is that there are no other products to purchase mm-hmm. um, and this is one of the dangers you can get into with Facebook ads it can cost a lot of money to find brand new people who don't know you have no interest in what you were doing previously to come to your page and to consider what you're selling, offer them to say, oh, no, thanks. Mm-hmm. It's far more profitable to get them to come to your page, say, oh, no, thanks. Oh, but look at this. They've got this thing. This looks interesting. Oh, look yep. at that. They have that thing. And then they make, they make a, you make a sale, not the thing that you were advertising. You kind of make it through inference. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where we start seeing publishers who have multiple products. Uh, their Facebook ads are far more profitable because you, you aren't in this kind of wedge between purchase now or don't purchase, you have a far greater opportunity to get people who fall through the cracks, so to speak. So that's something to think about as well. Then maybe one of the problems with this particular client that we've been talking about is that they only have one product. Maybe if they thought about, oh, well, if I, maybe if I bundle this product, because I, I believe it can only be used for like individuals, but maybe if mm-hmm. people want to, you know, use the product in the group setting, maybe they should do a mm-hmm. bundle where you can get three at a discount, mm-hmm. or maybe they should try to tweak the product so that you can get the deluxe version or the kind of bare bones version. And then at least that way they're creating some type of, uh, decisions for people to make. And you can even use the kind of bare bones version to kind of push people towards the the deluxe version. It's like, oh, but if you only spend, you know, $20 more, you get the deluxe version. And then, uh, so that's a way to really just use people to um, push them towards uh, the, uh, the the actual product that you get the, the most profit from. So I think that's something to keep in mind as well when uh, perceived value is just simply offering more products um, that have different touch points could see your 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 sales increase. Just for the yeah. simply for them existing, <laughs> yeah. Sure. That also in kind fact, of gives you room to grow if you're a. Maybe it's a thing to hope for because I know we often say like your your first Kickstarter. Um, you know, we all hope you turn a huge profit on your first Kickstarter, but that usually doesn't happen. Um, but it becomes much easier with follow up campaigns, and I think that's kind of part of it. You start to build like the perceived value, um, and your actual value is easier once you have a proven track record that you're going to deliver quality games or that you make quality games uh, or that you deliver in the timeline that you say you're going to deliver. Uh, there's a number of different publishers that there are people like, oh, I'll immediately back their game. Everything they've, they've done is great. So I don't even know anything about it. But if they have a new game, I want to check it out. Um, or it's one of those things that they're like, you know, I won't back this publisher because the last time they did a Kickstarter, it was two years late uh, and they had no communication throughout <laughs> that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't, I don't trust them with my money to deliver what they say they're going to deliver. Um, so maybe that's kind of a hopeful thing is if you're willing to put forward the effort 
to answer questions and and deliver a quality product up front mm-hmm. and stick by some of your commitments and timetables, it becomes easier to create sort of a, a perceived value mm-hmm. um, as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I find that one thing customers regularly say to me in regard to deliverance is that when uh, when I communicate on Board Game Geek, people are really happy. Wow, the designer is engaged in the community. The publisher is engaged in the community. And then they go to Discord and they see I'm there too. They go to Facebook and they get a response from me. Um, and of course, the the team working on the game. That is something that increases their value. In fact, it's increased people's rate. People have increased their rating on Board Game Geek because I sent them a message addressing uh, something that they that they said. It's like, oh, I thought it would be good for me to address this particular thing with you. And they were like, wow, the creator actually cares, you know, and just yeah. the simplest word, like a kind word, even somebody who is super upset and wrathful, you can turn that wrath with a single kind message. Yeah. Um, just saying, hey, yeah, I hear you, you know, and, and that's a great um, and that's a and that's advice that doesn't cost you anything. Right. There's literally zero cost in doing that, but your own personal integrity and standing by your product is often something that people are excited to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that helps them decide, oh, if, they, if they're willing to defend their own product this much, mm-hmm. then maybe I should give it a try. Yeah. And I'm it not, I'm not saying, fire, you know, right. Well, yeah, that's, you gotta <laughs> be careful, right? Here's, here's the 10 reasons why you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, we've got we've got we have seen clients kind of do that uh poorly, let's just say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we uh, you know, or like on deliverance, if somebody rated my game a five or six or seven, like I'm not gonna go and tell them, like, hey, uh, you might have played some of the rules wrong. Um, you know, let me know how you played and I'll tell you if you played it right. Or like somebody that's like, you know, we have a rating that's at a six or something, it's like you know, I played this once and I really can't um, understand. I really didn't understand a couple of things and we ended up getting decimated. And um, it's like, well, you know, why are you rating it when you've only played it once or something, you know, and you played half the rules wrong or I don't know. That type of thing is largely a mistake. But when somebody says, uh, for example, like they rate the game a five because, um, you know, my uh, box ended up totally broken when it arrived and I was really upset and they presume it's the publisher's fault or whatever. Um, that's something that I can fix. It's like, Oh yeah, that, or, Oh, my box came missing components and you know, that's low quality publisher, blah, blah. And then I send them a message. Hey, that was, that's probably a factory error and we replace those things for free. So let me know what you're missing. And I'd be happy to replace that for you. Um, those are the, the good things I, that you can do. I only got the box. None of the content came in it. So <laughs> <laughs> could you re- replace all the content? That's hilarious. <laughs> can you show me a picture of an empty box? Uh, <laughs> yes, <I can. laughs> so, so, um, but yeah, I, I find that, you know, just kind of also erring on the side of the customer can, can build a lot of, um, you know, just loyalty in that customer. When some, like you said, Jacob, when somebody says, "Oh, I had a great experience," I'll back whatever this person backs. That doesn't mean they're going to back every single thing the person backs. I, for example, love Chip Theory Games, but there are a lot of their projects I haven't backed, and that's not because I didn't like that particular game or or don't want to support them or whatever. But it's just because there is a high demand. But the more loyalty that they build with me, the more I'm going to take a look at every single one of the products, right? And um, so. 
uh, we've got to get some of those chip theory guys on, on the podcast. That'd be, that'd be fun. I think they'd be open to it as well. Uh, but, um, cause I think they do marketing super well, super well, um, with their community. And so there were a couple of, couple of other things that I wanted to, wanted to go over when, you know, that might help people with perception, you know, perceived value, increasing perceived value with your customers in particular. So with the deliverance sales cycle, we get somebody in on a Facebook ad. We're, we're telling people that the game has an 8.8 out, out of 10 on board game geek or like some of our ads say 8.7 others say 8.8 because you know, it varies depending on the, the month or whatever. Um, and we'll, we'll share like, you know, um, it, it, like a bunch of, a bunch of accolades and, and that kind of thing in the ad text itself. But then we demonstrate the product by showing it. And so they, let's just say they're, they're in, they jump on board, they look at the product, but they're not ready to buy. They're not yet ready to push the purchase button. And, you know, so the question is, what do they do? What, what will help them make their decision? And so there are some people that, you know, they're, um, kid gets home from school and they get interrupted. And those people, you kind of need to recover with an abandoned shopping cart uh, plug-in. But, um, but let's just say they, they remember you. A lot of them do. And they're like, all right, I want to look more into this. Where do they go and what do they do? One of the biggest things that I find is they, they look for reviewers, but more often than like, is this video on a particular reviewer's channel? They more look for a playthrough video and the game being de- like the, a game, a quick game demo. Like if they can get uh, like the Kickstarter, which has um, the moving gifts that show the game being played, that's going to be really good. Um, they might ask in their game groups, like, does anybody have this? What do you think about this? Um, and so, you know, they'll look at written reviews, written reviews on BoardGameGeek are very valuable. Um, for that. And, you know, written reviews elsewhere are, can be very valuable for that. Um, one of the reviews that's gone the furthest for us is actually on pluggedin.com. We had deliverance reviewed on plug or by plugged in, which is, um, kind of a, uh, you know, they review all sorts of pop culture things. And, um, it's like kind of a Christian review site and, uh, run by a big, huge nonprofit called focus on the family. And so, uh, normally they do movies. That's how I know them. And they, uh, I pitched a guy and he he's a board gamer and they reviewed us. And there are a lot of people that actually start initially with objections of like, you say this game is a Christian game. How is it a Christian game? Like, is it a, you know, and they're from both sides of the aisle, non-Christians and Christians. They're wondering like, what do you mean when you say that? And it's been something that we just were able to link. It's an article that we're like, Hey, there was a third party source that has no skin in the game to review us nicely um, called plugged in. And they, this is what they said. Like you should check this article out. And um, so stuff like that can be so, so useful in your sales cycle. And um, of course your communities, I mean, those are super duper important. Um, If Oprah says your game is great or Ellen DeGeneres does or whatever, then you'll probably, you know, your perceived value is going to be high. Uh, among, I don't know, noobs, but like it, <laughs> if, if you've got good reviewers, that's why I personally advise targeting reviewers that will generally like your stuff. I mean, I'm not going to go to somebody that loves, you know, in fact, I have made this mistake of going to anybody. And it's like one guy who he, he just so happens to be a Christian. He, he tends to like the lighter games that play in 20 to 30 minutes. Um, 
but I gave him deliverance. I just got a very, a review that wasn't enthusiastic. It wasn't bad. It just was, it's, I don't know. It just, it didn't feel like it had life in it, you know? And, um, the, I, I felt like it would have been better if I just didn't have that person review because they just aren't huge fans of these types of games. And, um, and so, you know, the, I think that that's a really important, you know, for, for publishers to kind of cherry pick the people that they review. It's not a bad thing. I think it's, I think that's actually, you know, for the better, for the best in the end. For sure. Um, any other things you guys can think of that relate to like, how do you increase the value of your product? One of the things I was thinking of, and maybe this is adjacent is that, you know, ultimately we want someone to perceive like the true value of the game. Um, and as a designer, it's easy. You love the, you love your product and you kind of expect, Hey, people love my product cause I love my product. Um, but I think one of the things to consider is that ultimately people may come to that assessment of if it has its true value by coming at it from different angles. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be different things that direct them to decide, Oh, this is worth it to me. So I think being, uh, able to, as a designer, look at what makes your product appealing, not just to the broader group, like ultimately that broader group is going to be who's purchasing your product, but within those subgroups, what is relevant to those different subgroups to try to convince them that my board game is valuable. Um, I think about like with deliverance, some of the targeting campaigns that we've run, um, where we've run targeting campaigns, um, they definitely do play into the side that you've, you've created a, you know, a Christian themed game. So the theme would be a lot more important when we're advertising to say a group that maybe has an, an interest in like high fantasy or like C.S. Lewis um, or J.R.R. Tolkien, um, where theme becomes a big part of uh, those targeting demographics. So being able to show off, you get to choose from all of these different angel characters, you're fighting all of these epic bad guys. Um, and that sort of thing becomes a lot more important. Whereas on the flip side, we also had targeting demographics where you're looking at tabletop RPG players or hardcore board game players, um, people that have a lot of experience playing a variety of different games and are used to the mechanics. So for them, a lot of that ad copy kind of shifted to talk about um, that there's a, there's a skirmish mode. There's a 10 mission campaign that you can play into. You get to build all of these different characters in different ways so that you can customize your experience to your play style. And so a lot of the ad copy was reflecting more of a mechanic based side of things. So while the theme people, maybe they do care about the mechanics. You obviously want them to have a, enjoy the game. The theme is what's going to help them decide if, if, if this is really worth it to them. Um, or on the flip side, you have the mechanic side of things where, especially with deliverance, you have a lot of people that enjoy the game and own the game that aren't Christians. So the theme isn't necessarily something that like won them over, like, oh, I'm really going out of my way because mm-hmm. I want to buy a Christian-themed board game. Um, but you created a compelling game where you have all of these different strategic things to try to, to think through. So I feel like one of the things that can be important when you're trying to get someone to assess the true value of your game is realizing that people are going to come to that assessment from different angles. So being able to kind of put yourself in the mindset of why would this particular group like my game or mm-hmm. why would this particular group like or dislike my game so that you can kind of cater to those things within your ad copy, within your the framing of your Kickstarter page or the imagery that you want to to show off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say that 
I find, and I'll, I'll, I'll beat this drum probably until I die. The best way to figure that out is to ask the people that, that buy, like what, what made you, um, you know, buy, what made you buy? And they'll, they'll tell you, you know, and different people will have different answers and, um, you, it might inform the way that you market or even talk about your game in the future. So I'm all, I'm all about that. Um, two, two other quick ways that, you know, one, one was the advice that we gave to this client, which was, you know, we don't, if you don't have any quick way to change the perceived value, change the value to be in line with perception. So if your product is $99 and nobody's buying it, then let's see what happens when we discount it to 69 for like a week and how many people buy then. Um, so, you know, or that's an extreme number, but, uh, for deliverance, we uh, gave people the neoprene. So neoprene mats were selling a little bit slower than the other um, the other things because it's a big expense. Forty nine dollar product versus uh, the metal coins, which are twenty four, the acrylic standees, which are twenty five. That you know just are a little bit more accessible. People have some people have negative feelings about neoprene mats because they're they're big and not not always necessary and that kind of thing. Everybody loves the deliverance mat when they get it. But what I did was I bundled the two together. And gave a ten dollars off. It immediately became our most popular product that we had. We sold out of every neoprene mat, like at at the same time as our other add-ons sold out, which uh, was which you know we had about I want to say two hundred more neoprene mats than our other add-ons, and so um, we were you know it just it just performed extremely well. Um, so the perceived value of just a ten dollar discount was incredible for people. They they jumped and I made an average of $39 more per sale, which is, which is really great. Um, another thing is like the shipping, if it's too expensive, that's a big problem. So, you know, making sure your shipping is not too expensive. I find $10 shipping is a good number and trying to absorb that in, you know, in your, in your products is good. But if your shipping is 15 or $20, um, that's going to stop people. So, um, I mean, I guess that's, that's really all the time we have. I'd love to spend longer. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll revisit this topic in the future. Um, but uh, for now, Robot Richard, send us out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you have a crowdfunding question, we also have a page on our site where you can send a message directly to us. Please visit crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash question. And if your question is a great question, we may include it in a future podcast. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.